Welcome to the Vineyard Church Podcast. For more information, visit us at vkcwest.com. A few things as we get going. Uh, one thing that we really love in this church is, is to be together and to worship. And um, these times like worship, like what we just did, are really precious, aren't they? I mean, it's like to feel a room full of voices singing and like hearts sort of focusing on the presence of God is just this really powerful thing. So I just wanted to share with you on Sunday night, November the 6th, we are going to have a night of worship for the first time in a while. And uh, we'll take that evening uh, from seven o'clock to nine o'clock. And it's going to be something a little bit unique, a little bit different. We're actually going to do, instead of like a worship team that leads, we're going to move all the chairs out of this place. And then a bunch of our musicians and worship leaders from this community and from a bunch of other vineyard churches, worship leaders will be here. And it'll look like a guitar guitar shop exploded uh, because we'll have just a room full of instruments unplugged and we're just going to be in this room and play and worship together for an evening. Does that sound good? And then we'll make sure that we take time and in in moments like that, it's really good for us uh, when we're in God's presence and we're just sensing him near that if there's like a physical healing that somebody needs or things that you need prayer for, that we would take time, that we would lay hands on people and pray for them and uh, just draw near to God in a night like that. All right, so November the 6th, you'll see information on that coming up. The other thing before we get going and continue on our series today, I just wanted to share uh, something personal and have you guys pray with me about something that uh, matters a lot to our family. I have a really close friend who is, of all things, a drag racer. He races really, really fast cars on uh, a TV show called uh, Street Outlaws. And last night he was in a race and he uh, got in a wreck and they had to fly him to the hospital. And we just, in vineyard churches, we believe that um, God heals people when we pray. And so if you would, can we just take a minute and pray together over him and just um, his his wife and one of his daughters is with him. So that's great. Um, but just pray that everything is healed. Can we do that? Is that all right? So God, we just, uh, we just ask that you would lay your hands on Robin and on his body. I just pray uh, that you would heal him completely. Jesus, we believe that you're the healer, and we've watched you, uh, we've watched you do miraculous things, God, to heal people physically. And I just pray, uh, we just have faith in this place that if you want to, you can lay your hands on him, you can heal his body completely, God, and there will be no lasting damage to him. So God, we place him in your hands and in your care. We thank you for his life and for the faith that he has in you. And I just pray that you would heal my friend. Amen. Amen. Um, we're going to be, thanks for doing that, guys. That, that's been uh, heavy on our hearts for the last evening. Um, so we're going to continue on in this series on the Sermon on the Mount, the things that Jesus said and taught. And you remember we started this several weeks back, Jesus is speaking to people about the kingdom of God. We started off by looking at this kingdom of God that Jesus comes and speaks about is upside down from all of the other kingdoms. It's like the meek will inherit the earth. The weak are strong. The poor are rich. It's like everything that we know about power and kingdoms is just flipped upside down in Jesus' view of the kingdom that he has come to bring. 
And we start to see that not only is this a kingdom that he's bringing, but that he invites people to live a life with him and that through them as salt and light in the world, in the world that, that this kingdom would be moving into the lives of other people. And then Jesus starts to talk about these really practical things. I, I love the teachings of Jesus, the stories of Jesus, because they just talk about like the real stuff about what it is to be a human. He starts off by talking about anger and forgiveness. Uh, anyone ever have anything that they needed to forgive? Yes? Anyone come across a person that hurt them? And this choice of the human heart, do I, do I release them and forgive them from what they've done to me or do I hang on to it and become angry and bitter? It's like a deeply practical thing that he starts off teaching about. And then he moves into another deeply practical thing about our human existence, talking about sexuality and how our life is intended to be lived in the, the covenant and the sort of way that God has put this thing together for connection and commitment, all to be in one. And, and then he moves beyond just sort of intimacy um, in marriage and in covenant, and he moves into relational realities of like, hey, what happens when you have an enemy? And of all things, he tells us, uh, love them, which is counter, that sounds upside down, right? How many of us have the first impulse of our heart, ah, that person is wrecking my life. Mm, I should love, right? <laughs> it's like, well, it's not my knee-jerk reaction. Maybe I'm the... Um, and then he starts to move into this thing of a life with God, of like substance in a life with God, a real authentic life with God, and not like spiritual performance or religion. Not like fake, not the fake thing, but an actual real substance in a life with God. And then he starts teaching how to pray, these prayers that sort of frame our world and our, our minds around God, who is actually a father, that we live in a relationship with God, that he takes care of our needs, that we can trust him, that he not only restores the relationship between us and him, but between us and other people. And, it's, and he empowers us for the life that we're called to live. It's this powerful prayer that he teaches, sometimes referred to as the Lord's Prayer. And then he moves on to this thing that is kind of rare in our culture, honestly, of fasting. This idea of removing something from life to interrupt the rhythms and the pace of life, the things that we would naturally gravitate to, to remind ourselves, to sharpen our hearts and our minds around prayer and engaging with God. And this week, what is interesting about this week's passage, it's like he's been talking about these really, I mean, those are practical things, right? Like how to have a relationship with people, how to live our sexuality, how to, how to engage in a life of prayer in a spiritual world. Those are all deeply like day in and day out things. And then it's like Jesus does this fascinating thing. He zooms out from this day-to-day thing to this like 10,000 foot view. And all of a sudden he starts talking about living a life with eternal significance. Things like living a life that will matter, not just while we're on the planet, but beyond when we're on the planet. And the teachings that Jesus gives that we'll look at today are even rooted in our stuff. It's, it's the teachings of Jesus that cause us to say things at funerals like, yeah, you don't really see hearses with U-Hauls behind them, right? 
Like your stuff doesn't go with you or like you can't take it with you. Those kinds of things like folk sayings that people say, many of them sort of emerge from these teachings that Jesus has. And here's an interesting thing that I've just noticed as we're thinking about eternity, we're thinking about life beyond today. That over my years of pastoring um, for almost a couple of decades, I've done really countless funerals. And uh, in those funerals, this is just an obs- this is not like research, it's just observation. There's, there are like really about four kinds of funerals. And maybe you've been to one of these kinds, or maybe you've been to all of these kinds over the course of life. But the first type that as you're doing a funeral, you can sometimes notice is the first three are really broken, so prepare for the bummer. And then the fourth one is great, so we'll... We'll turn it around at the end. Uh, the first one that, that sort of feels like it has a real heaviness or a weight to it is when you go to a funeral of somebody who has like wrecked a lot of relationships and they haven't like mended them or put them back together and then the, the family and the friends have lost this person, but they didn't really like get a chance to reconcile those relationships and put them back together. And there can be this like tremendous weight in those moments and of grief. Ah, we didn't we didn't get to fix that thing together. It's like a lot of things feel left undone. There's another kind of a funeral that I've observed, uh, which is like where the person was incredibly successful and they accumulated a lot of stuff and they did a lot of impressive things, but they were like really absent relationally from the people in their life. And so the people who are like showing up to the funeral, like, are having all these conversations, and it's usually, like, sort of vague rumblings, people saying things behind the scenes where they're like, oh, yeah, well, can you tell that that guy's trying to get the the lake house for the inheritance? It's like the people that are in the family are talking about, like, not the loss of the person who uh, they had this deep relationship with. They're actually talking about, like, dividing up, angling to divide up the stuff, have you ever seen something like that when somebody's passed away and just gone, oh, that just feels really off? There's this other kind of uh, heavy type of a, a funeral where the person who has passed away and their family members, like none of them really have encountered a life of faith or a life with God. And, and so they're in this process of grieving someone they've lost, but they don't necessarily have this hope of a life after this life, and that can feel incredibly heavy or weighty. But then there's these other, this other kind of funeral, and maybe you've been to one of these, where like the person who passed away had this real legacy of love and relationship, and they had a life with God, and, and all of the people that are there like just have this hope in them that's tremendous, and they have a hope for for this person, here's some of the markers of those types of relation, relational dynamics that happen. It, at those kinds of funerals where the person has lived a life with God and left a legacy of love, here's some of the things that you will notice. It's like you'll find in the same, like the lobby of the thing, there's people who are, who are crying and there's people who are like laughing loud. And both things feel like they're appropriate. Both things feel like they belong, right? Or you might notice this, that people start telling stories of like, my life was so significantly different because 
of the way that God used this person in my world. Or, or they might talk about missing them, but there's this thing about the way that they miss them, which is like, yeah, but this is not the end. There's going to be some years that we're apart, but we will see them again. There's this deep well of hope. And then even at times in these settings where somebody's lived a life with God and their treasure was the kingdom, and they lived this legacy of love in relationships, that people will even at times be envious of them because they're like, yeah, that person took their last breath on this side, and then they took their first breath in the presence of the God that loved them, and they knew that God loved them. And that's where they are now. And their suffering and their pain is over, and and they're with Jesus. And there's this hope in those moments. I had recently, like within this last year in my own life, um, my grandmother on my father's side passed away in her 90s. She'd been living in a nursing home with my grandfather. He sort of like cowboyed up for the funeral and then he went back and within a week he passed away as well in his 90s. And the interesting thing about their life is they'd been missionaries and pastors. They lived a life of love and relationship. And they'd, my grandfather had even been a seminary professor at one point in his life. Their, their life was oriented around the kingdom. And the funny thing is like, that, there was no reason to have like conversations about who got stuff because there was like no stuff, right? <laughs> But you know what they left was this legacy of like there were picture after picture and story after story of people who found a life with God because of the way that my grandparents had loved them. It was like this beautiful reorienting moment. And the funny thing for many of us who have a life with God is that many times it's only when we've lost someone that we take time to think about eternity and things of eternal significance, Right? It's, it's in those moments, but the interesting thing that Jesus does is he talks about all these day-to-day realities of how to live a fully human life, and then he moves from that into this, like, big picture. Nobody's passed away, but it's time to talk about eternity. It's time to talk about things that last and things that don't. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at this passage about Jesus talking about orienting life in a way that matters, not just for today and not just for tomorrow, but for eternity. Matthew chapter 6 is where we're going to be. Verse 19, I'm going to read this passage of Jesus. He says this about money and possessions. He says, do not store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them, where thieves break in and steal. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves cannot break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be also. Then he goes on to say this, your eye is like the lamp that provides light to your body. And when your eye is healthy, your body will be filled with light. But when your eye is unhealthy, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is. Then he goes on to say something really challenging for us living in a Western world where we have lots of stuff, right? No one can serve two masters. You will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. And then he just goes ahead and comes right out with it. 
you cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. It's interesting, there's these movements that Jesus takes us on in this passage. The first is this this sort of, he, he just acknowledges the temporary nature of money and stuff. Have you guys ever, um, finish this phrase for me. Any, how many people have ever owned a home? I'm curious. Anyone in this room owned a home? Okay, finish this phrase for me. Something breaks in your house and you say, ah, oh, the joys of home ownership. Everybody knows it. <laughs> Because your crap's always breaking, right? I'm sorry. Because your, your stuff's always breaking. Uh, we just had our main sewer line back up this week. I changed baby diapers, and now I'm dealing with this, right? My whole life is dealing with st- feces. Um, <laughs> Jesus just acknowledges this. Here's the deal. There's the cost of the, like, when you're thinking of buying stuff and what to do with money, there's the cost of the stuff you buy, but that's not the actual cost of it, is it? Those of us who have bought stuff. There's also the time that it takes to keep the thing up. And there's the money that it takes to keep the thing up. And if the thing is nice enough, you get to pay taxes on it every year too, right? It's like the cost of owning stuff is not just the cost of getting the stuff. And Jesus acknowledges this. He says, hey, have you noticed stuff breaks? If you have something of worth, it rusts. If you have some clothes, they seem to get tattered, right? I was made fun of this week because I keep my phone in my front pocket of my pants, and there's always this outline in my front pocket of where my phone goes, and I'm like, I guess it's time for new pants. Like, nothing lasts. This is what Jesus is saying. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't, like, it all wears down. And even when you have something and it's in good working order, he goes, oh, it's not just that it breaks down, but have you noticed sometimes the stuff you have, it can just go away. It can just be taken. Has anyone ever like had their 401k sitting in the spot where you felt good about it? And then miraculously, like it just, a bunch of it just wasn't anymore. Anybody? Anybody? Or am I just a crummy investor? Um, He goes, listen, even the stuff that you have, sometimes it goes away. And the stuff that you do have, have you noticed that it doesn't last? And then he makes this movement where he starts talking about, so listen, it's, it's temporary. So let's talk about where your heart goes. He actually turns it to a matter of worship. He says this, where your treasure is, that's where your heart goes. And this is a profound thing for us living in the Western world, because even, I mean, yes, some of us have more wealth than others in this room. That's like, of course, that's the case. But most of us in the Western world have a lot. And so we have choices of is enough enough? Is, do we need to accumulate? Do we need more stuff? The truth of the matter is this, when our hearts orient around stuff, and temporary things, something happens, our heart gets attached to our stuff. Have you noticed this? Here's a a fascinating example of what happens when your heart isn't attached to your stuff anymore. It gets attached to something more relational. You guys ever have the friend... um, in, in like any social group as you're growing up, there's always the friend that like goes out to eat with you and then the check comes and it's like T-Rex arms, right? Can't reach the bill kind of thing. 
And then that friend meets a girl who they're like, oh, I'm falling for her. And you know the craziest thing? All of a sudden they find their wallet. All of a sudden there's money for dates and you're like, come on, bro. We've been buying your food forever, right? This kind of thing. When your heart goes somewhere, your money goes there too. This is how the human heart works. Wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart goes. In the context, can we just talk like openly in the context of local church life? This is, uh, this is one of those things that's awkward for uh, pastors to talk about sometimes. So I was like, Cody, dibs. <laughs> I'll talk about money all day long. I actually had uh, parents who modeled generosity for me from this really early age. And it just oriented my worldview around what money is even for. Because I watched, like I grew up in a home where we didn't have a ton of possessions. And we, I got to watch my parents be generous my whole childhood. Even though there were people with a lot more, nobody was out generousing the family that I got to observe growing up. And it just oriented me in this way that, let, let's just talk about generosity in our life and, and the role that it plays in community. There, there's many people, how many of you have heard this one? Ah, church. Church is just after your money, right? That is a very fascinating thing. Because, um, and this is just an observation, uh, God made you, and he made everyone you knows, and he made the planet you stomp around on, and they made a whole lot more than this planet that you stomp around on. Does God need our money? No. It would be insane to think, all right, Lord, I'll take care of you on this one. <laughs> That's nuts. So the thing of being a part of a spiritual community and taking some of our money and investing it into the kingdom activity of that spiritual community, that's not really about God and what he needs, is it? It's like, oh, where my treasure goes, my heart goes. If I want to love these people and be on mission with these people to see the kingdom of God come in the place around the place that God put this church community, well, I don't want to miss out on getting to invest in the things that God does in this specific place at this specific time for whatever days I do get on this planet. There is this fascinating difference between a heart that goes, ah, church is just after your money, or a heart that goes, the mission that God put me on and the community that he put me on, like, it matters to me, and I can't see a need that exists in this mission of God and not take joy in participating in being a part of what that thing is. Do you see how very different those heart attitudes are? And then as it relates to things like buildings, you've, you've noticed that like there's been all these kids that have been coming and filling this building in this space for these fifth quarter things, and, and we're starting to notice like God is moving in a really unique way and maybe it's time to make space for that activity of what God is actually doing. Here's the fascinating thing. Uh, I was a part of another vineyard church in the Northland for about two decades of my life. We saw that thing happen a few times. Every time we would try and create space, new space for people so that they could have a relationship with God, there, were, there was this group of people or individuals that would go, ah, 
All right, they're going to hit us up for money again so they can build some new buildings, right? Kind of thing. But for me, it was actually like really personal at a really young age. And part of this is growing up in the family I grew up in with the worldview that I got to inherit. I was 17 years old when I started leading worship in a vineyard church. And it was this powerful experience in my life because the, the kids around me in high school, we would stop and pause and worship on a weekend and over 100 kids from our school would show up and fill a basement of one of the rich kids' houses in our school district. Uh, we had to move from house to house to house because uh, we just had to figure out whose parents were more loaded in order to fit everybody in, right? But God was doing something. He was like, he was capturing the hearts of my friends and my family. Well, the vineyard church that I was in had been meeting in a school and then it moved into its very first building and its very first location. And it was this powerful, beautiful thing, but it moved into that location. The weekend after 11 is when it opened. And there was this flood of people coming to church for spiritual answers to how to navigate this kind of grief and uncertainty and the church exploded in growth. Well, here's the thing that happened. We built a room for people to gather in, but there was no room for the high school students to meet in. So my first worship leading assignment, this is the unsex, uh, sorry, the unshiniest thing. Uh, I'm sorry, Cody. I'm, <laughs> you're getting crap, you're getting sexy. It's, it's a mess. Um, so... <laughs> Uh, this was not the shiniest worship leading assignment. Let me say it that way. Um, it was, they, we put a tent up in the parking lot behind the building in the middle of the winter, surrounded it with hay bales and propane heaters. And that was where I got to set up and tear down an entire PA system every weekend just so that my friends could have somewhere to come and encounter Jesus. That was my first worship leading assignment in a vineyard church. Every week. And then the grown-ups said, hey, let's make room for youth kids. And even as a 17, 18 kid, a senior in high school, I was bussing tables at, uh, in order to put gas in my car. And I was giving to the church, but then above giving to the church, I was giving to the building fund because it wasn't about walls to me. I knew kids in my school that needed Jesus. And the idea that they wouldn't have a place to come and meet him, I couldn't, it wasn't much, guys. I mean, it was like some of the money that a 17-year-old made bussing tables. We're not talking about generational wealth here, <laughs> right? But I could, it's because it was in my heart. It's because it was human beings that I loved, that I wanted to know Jesus. You see the difference between, ah, oh, there they go, building buildings again. Or I cannot stand the idea that this Jesus who has changed my life, that one of my friends would not. One of my friends who has allergies couldn't come to church because of the hay bale situation, right? These things, where your treasure is, that's where your heart goes. And for so many people, I think the idea of engaging in a spiritual community in a way that's filled with generosity is really, like there's one of two things going on. Either something about that place, like they're not living on mission and it's just kind of church services and, and then go home and there's not like an impact to be made in the world around us. And so there's nothing like, there's no like, oh, God's doing something and I want to be a part of that thing. Either that's going on or perhaps... Maybe it's just that we love, our loves are going somewhere else. 
Maybe it's that we love stuff and the idea of not having more stuff and putting money somewhere else. It's just, it just doesn't add up. When Jesus starts talking about, like, don't store up treasure on earth, store up treasure in heaven. Like, what's he talking about? I would suggest, and this is my, my reading of the thing, what lasts in life? People. This is what lasts. And then he starts talking about the eye is the lamp of the body. Did, did anyone else get kind of confused by that little part of the thing? You're like, what's he talking about here? The dark is light and the light is dark and the what? what okay, hold on a second. What's going on, right? Here's something fascinating about this little part. When we start to see the world through the lens of another kingdom, right? Like a kingdom of this earth, all of a sudden we start to think, oh, that's where my hope is going. That's the good stuff in life, right? And in the Western world, what is the good stuff in life? You guys remember in, in our series um, where we were looking at like the ruthless elimination of hurry and these spiritual rhythms of Jesus. How many times is the Western person marketed to in a day? Over 3,000 marketing messages a day. All about stuff that you don't have that if you had it, then life would be great. When the dark is light and the light is dark, it's like things that are temporary and will fade. You start going, that's where I'm putting my hope. That's what I'm going to invest in. That's what I'm going to, I'm going to make my life about that thing. It's like something temporary seems like it's really big and important and something eternal seems small and eh, maybe who cares? The light starts to seem dark and the dark, it's like we lose our spiritual vision for what matters in life. And then he lands it. Jesus lands this little thought. He says this, you can't serve God and money. You're going to love one. You're going to despise the other. Which is a really, really strange thing. Some translations of this say you can't serve God and mammon which is um, this sort of, people have talked about mammon as the uh, sort of spiritual god of wealth and prosperity kind of thing. In, um, oh gosh, what, it's in, Mil in Milton's book, Paradise Lost, he's telling this story and mammon is a fallen angel. He's a character in it, a fallen angel who's more in love with the golden streets in heaven than he is with the king on the throne. It's like you can't, you can't get so focused on the good things that come from a life with God that God himself is just someone you transact with so that you can get goodies. It doesn't work like that. See, this worship, why, you start thinking it through. Why is it this binary thing? I mean, can't I just sort of love my stuff, but keep it in check a little bit and love God too? Like, can't, is it really true? Can't I just love God and money? Do I have to choose? And here's the, here's the truth of the thing. This is from uh, a vineyard theologian, Don Williams. He, he said this, um, you become like what you worship. This is the truth. 
whatever you, here's what you worship is what you give your heart over to in the hopes of a return of life. And so when we worship God, when we give our heart to him in hopes of a return of life, what happens? Paul actually gives this sort of like set of things. He goes, here's what happens when you give your heart to God in hopes of a return of life. He makes you loving. He makes you kind and patient. You remember these fruit? It's like fruit that comes from a life in the, in the spirit. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control. These things just flow out of you. It's this entire other kind of life. Why? Because we become like what we worship and that's who God is and that's what God's like. And that starts to come out of us. But when we start attaching our hearts to stuff, to money, you start worshiping money, what happens to you internally? You become greedy or demanding or protective of your stuff or you become self-justifying or discontent. Enough is never enough. And so there's always something else that's needed. And since it never fills or satisfied, it escalates. And then all of a sudden, it's not just what can I get that I can afford, it's what can I get that I can't afford. Anybody? Here's the fascinating thing about these two places that we can take our heart. If you love God, God is a relational being. God is love. God loves back, right? God loves first. We respond in love to him. He loves back. It's a relational reality. Has anyone ever owned stuff that really loved them? Back? I've heard this phrase. This is kind of like old folk saying kind of a thing like, hey, take care of your stuff and it'll take care of you. Right? Anybody, anybody have somebody that tells them this? Yes? Take care of your stuff. It'll take care of you. Well, I've owned enough stuff that I, I have amended the phrase. Okay? Here, I say, take care of your stuff and you'll stave off entropy for a slightly longer period of time. And then maybe if you get rid of your stuff at just the right moment, it'll break when somebody else owns it. Right? Your stuff can't love you back. My stuff never has. All right. But is it really as big of a problem for us in the Western world as we're talking about it being? Isn't this something from Jesus way back then when maybe people were just different? Right? People these days, I mean, we have a lot, so we just don't even have to really think about it that much. It's just not even that much of a problem. Well, let me ask a few questions. Just for your reflection on like the role that stuff plays in your world. And just FYI, on the pass-fail of this one, I'm not passing on all of these myself some days. Here's a question. Anybody buying stuff that they can't afford on a credit card? And did that stuff make you happy for very long? Here's another one. Does anybody have to pass by the needs that they see in the lives of other people around them because they're living right at the razor edge of having enough to make ends meet? It's like, oh, I got a raise. 
What are you going to do with that raise? Well, now I can get a big house. I got another raise. Well, now I can get an even bigger house. And we're always at this razor edge of incoming and outgoing. Here's another question. Anybody too strapped for cash to dream about like radical generosity? Or here's another one. Has any, (laughs) this one will get us all, including me. Has anyone ever told themselves, maybe in another season of life when I have a little more, then I can start serving God with my money. Anybody? Come on. I've thought it. Ah, things are tight. But if I had more, then I could, you know what the litmus test is for what you would do with more? What you do with what you have now. However you steward whatever you have now is how you will steward more. I watched it growing up in a family where there wasn't a lot and generosity was free-flowing. And I've watched people that have got more and more and more and keep it. It's a matter of the heart, right? Whatever we do with what we have is what we would do if we had more. So here's a fascinating thing about Jesus. If something really matters to Jesus, he doesn't just say it once. Have you noticed this? Have you ever read the Gospels and gone, oh, he keeps bringing this up. And then he's telling more stories and more stories. And more. Oh, this time he's just telling us straight out, but this time he's telling us in a parable or a story. And then he tells it in a different kind of parable and story. I'm starting to think that God might care about this, right? It's for people who are dense like me, it's a gift, the repetition. We're going to look at three stories that Jesus tells as it relates to our stuff, because sometimes stories are this beautiful way of us finding ourselves in the story of God that he's been telling. The first is a parable of seeds. It's found in Luke chapter 8, and we're going to start at verse 11. Here's the thing. Jesus has been telling this story about a farmer who goes out and sows seeds in a field, and some of the seeds fall on a certain kind of soil, some fall on another kind of soil, some fall on another kind of soil. All those seeds don't really make it, and then the seeds that fall like on the good ground, those seeds put down roots and grow a harvest of a hundred times more. And after he gets done telling this story, his disciples go, hey, um, you're going you're gonna to need to unpack that one for us. That one felt like it went, whew, right? And so he says this in verse 11. Here is the meaning of the parable. The seeds that were sown are God's word. And the seeds that fell on the footpath represent those who hear the message only to have the devil come and take it away from their hearts to prevent them from believing and being saved. The seeds on the rocky soil represent those who hear the message and receive it with joy. But since they don't have deep roots, they believe for a while and then they fall away when they face temptation. The seeds that fell among the thorns represent those who hear the message, but all too quickly the message is crowded out by, and pay attention to this, It's crowded out by cares and riches and pleasures of life. We're going to spend a little bit on that. And so they never grow to maturity. And the seeds that fell on good soil represent honest, good-hearted people who hear God's word and cling to it and patiently produce a harvest. 
This is the meaning of the story that Jesus tells. He's like, listen, as it relates to people hearing about a life with me and whether or not they step into that life, yes, there is spiritual warfare dynamics. We live in a world with an enemy who loves to steal and kill and destroy. That's a part of what happens. But also, he goes on and says this, there's temptation to live in other kingdoms, right? To have other idols, other love, marketed to 3,000 times or more a day to attach our heart to one of these loves, something that will return life to me. And then the third thing he talks about, this soil where it grows for a little bit, but then it gets, this life with God gets choked out. What does it get choked out by? Worries and riches, and pleasures. Here's the interesting thing. Worries, here's the impulse under worries. I am the one that takes care of me. This is the story we tell ourselves. Have you noticed in America, we love the story about bootstraps? I came from nothing and I made myself into something, right? I'm the one that takes care of me. That's that impulse that crowds out the kingdom of God. It is hard to have a savior when you're pretty sure you can save you, right? Worries and riches, these other, here's riches. I'm the one that makes me successful. I'm the one that proves that I was a success in life. And pleasures, here's, here's the story underneath the story of pleasures is if I'm going to live a life where my desires and my needs are fulfilled, I'm going to have to be the one that takes care of it. Can you see how challenging it would be to live in a relationship with a generous God who only wants our hearts, who wants us to live a life with him? If we thought, no, 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 I'm taking care of me. Also, I'm fulfilling me. And also, I'm the one that proves whether my life mattered. Can you see how challenging it would be for love to form between our heart and God? if we were busy being the one in control? See, here's the, here's the thing that's fascinating about God's economy. I, I, love that, uh, I love that Cody talked about this last week. Um, in a life with God, where we take all of what we have, our treasures, and we place them in God's hands and we trust him, and we take us and we place us into relationship with God. The fascinating thing is God is the treasure that we get. But God is a good and generous God. And the fascinating thing is this. He's not like a vending machine where you go, A7, dispense, Ford, F-150, right? And even though sometimes we, are, we get more prayerful when the car breaks down, I get it. I've done it, right? Um, He's not the vending machine. He's like the good dad that knows how to give good gifts. And if you're close and in a relationship with him, it is just true that he takes care of things. Here's here's the thing. Brooke and I, since since I was a child, I've, I've always tithed and looked for ways to invest money in the kingdom. When Brooke and I got married, this is how we've navigated our finances, right? It's like, We give to the life of a local church community and we look for ways to be generous to other people. Can I tell you the funny thing about living in that rhythm of of learning to trust God? It's not linear, right? 
I would love to say, oh, since I'm doing those things and have been for all these years, I'm great at trusting God to meet my needs. Can I tell you the first thing that I do every time something breaks or every time I need something new? I try to figure out how to make it happen. It's insane. My wife and I were at this point in our young family life where I was like, uh, we'd had Trudy and Brooke was teaching at a school called Pembroke, which is a school off the plaza, and she was teaching young kids there. And she would go away to work, and she would be all teary because she was leaving our, our daughter for the day, and then she'd come home, and then Trudy would go to sleep, and she just felt like she was missing this beautiful season of life while she was working. And so she starts doing this thing to me that I did not appreciate. She goes, uh, hey, I don't want to raise 20 of somebody else's kids and miss out on these really beautiful young years with our kids. And I'm, I'm like, yeah, I know, life's tough sometimes like that, but uh, you know, I'm a pastor and you're a teacher, so together we make it work, right? And she's like, no, you're not getting it. Like, I'm trying to tell you something. And I'm like, yeah, 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 but if, maybe if I don't listen, it'll go away. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, hey, look at the budget, look at the spreadsheet. I made you a spreadsheet. This is like what it takes for life to work. And, and uh, this is the bit that you contribute. And this is the bit, like, look, it all works, right? And so it, you'll be fine. These mother feelings will go away. Huh? It'll be fine. Uh, and she just keeps like gent gently, lovingly, and then a little bit more forcefully, like, no, man, you don't get to blow it off. I'm trying to tell you something that matters to me. And then we get pregnant with Jack. And believe it or not, the whole situation ramped up a bit. Now she doesn't want to leave two kids to go and teach. It's like God did something to her heart that was really specific to her, right? And she starts sharing that with me, and I'm just like, ah. And so eventually our conversation goes to this place, and she goes, listen, has God ever not met our needs? And I'm like, don't you pastor me. <laughs> She's like, has he ever not met our needs? I'm like, no, he always meets our needs. You know, and she's like, just pray, would you? And I get to this point where I'm like, you know what? Even, even if we got to sell, even if I have to sell a guitar, which is, whew, <laughs> whew, we're going to make this thing happen, right? The day that we make that decision within the week, she has an offer to work from home making exactly as much as she does as a teacher in 20 hours a week. And then that job only lasts for a little while and Jack up and Brooke goes, hey, I think it's time for a new house. Like we're living in this really tiny place and it's like not gonna work. And I'm like, oh, Brooke. And she goes, can we just pray about it? And I'm like, no, 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 we don't even need to pray about it because here, spreadsheet, look, look, we don't have enough. So we don't go from like two incomes to one income and then get a different house. In fact, uh, the spread, as the spreadsheet will show you, right? And I start trying to do the thing where I like am steering our world. And she's like, all right, well, just so you know, I'm gonna be praying about it because I think God can sort out a home that's just right for us, and he'll provide what we need. A week later, a lady calls us who we don't know 
and says, hey, I raised my family. They're all adults now. I'm moving to a retirement community. Um, Hey, listen, uh, I raised my family in this house, and I have really beautiful memories here, and I want this house to go to a family that uh, is a really good family. And so I don't know what your financial situation is, but if I don't have to like change anything to the house and I can just leave it, just make whatever the offer is that you can afford and we'll go from there. God moves us from a tiny little place to a four bedroom house and our outgoing changed none. This is the God that we have. Is he a vending machine? No, the matter of the thing is trust. At every point, do you trust me? Do you trust me to be like, yes, you can get wrapped up in worries and cares and pleasures. Or you could trust me. And Brooke is so much better than me at this. She, honestly, we should have co-taught this and then you could have seen all the eye rolls, right? As it relates to the kingdom making it into our hearts and our lives, we have to learn to trust God and for worries, riches, and pleasures not to be the focal point of our time and our focus and our attention and our energies. Jesus tells this other story. It's a story about a Samaritan. A teacher of the law comes to him and says, hey, what's the first and greatest commandment? And he says, I don't know, you tell me. And he goes, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus goes, nailed it. But the teacher realizes, wait a minute, Jesus doesn't just ever leave things alone. So he goes, well, then who's my neighbor? Right? Let's let's pick this up. Verse 30, Luke 10, verse 30. Jesus replied to him with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits, and they stripped him of his clothes and beat him up and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. And the temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, and he also passed him by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan, think of Oakland Raiders fan, (laughs) came, sorry, there's a game today, you get it, came along and when he saw the man, he felt comparison for him, comparison, compassion for him. And going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them and put him on his own donkey and took him to the inn where he took care of him. And the next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins telling him, take care of this man. And if his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Then Jesus asked, now which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man? And the man replied, the one who showed him mercy. He can't even reply with Samaritan. He says, the one that showed mercy. And Jesus says, go and do the same. John Maxwell is a a known author. He pointed out that, you know, the primary point of this story is about who do we love and loving our enemies and that kind of thing. But in the underlying uh, sort of subtext of this story, there are some really fascinating things to observe. There's a thief that comes, and here's the heart of the thief. What is yours is mine, and I'm going to take it, which is this violation of the 10th commandment to not covet. 
And then the religious leaders who go by, you notice they walk by on, on the other side of the road. Here's the hard attitude of that. What's mine is mine. I'm going to keep it. I got my own world going on. I can't be bothered with you and yours. And then the Samaritan actually shows the, the last two heart attitudes. First, we see his heart moves this way. What's mine is yours, and I'm going to give it. He uses what he has to care for the man. And then here's the last heart attitude that we see. What's mine has never really been mine. I'm just here to manage it. You notice he gives everything he's got to take care of the man. And he goes, if everything I've got isn't enough, give it time. I'll get more and you can have that too. It's not my stuff. I'm just managing it. See the difference in those heart attitudes? The interesting thing about treasure is that it is a fiercely relational thing. Let's look at Matthew 25. This is the last. What time is it? I'm going to summarize this one for you. And then this is homework this week because I'm just looking at the clock. Um, Read this passage in Matthew 25 about the three servants and the time, talent, and treasure. And I'm just going to summarize it. There was a master who left three servants in charge of what belonged to him so he could go away on a journey. He gave one three talents. He gave one two talents. He gave one one talent. He comes back after a period of time and says, hey, come on in and tell me what you did with the thing I entrusted you with. And let's pick up in verse 20 here. The servant to whom he had entrusted five bags of silver came forward with five more. Master, you gave me five bags of silver to invest, and I've earned five more. And the master was full of praise and said, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in handling this small amount. Now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. The servant who had received two bags of silver came forward and said, master, you gave me two bags of silver and I've earned two more. And he says, what do you think he says? Same thing right? Well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I'll give you more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. And then the servant with one bag of silver came and said, Master, I knew you were a harsh man, harvesting crops you didn't plant and gathering crops you didn't cultivate, and I was afraid to lose your money, so I hid it in the earth. Look, here's your money back. Here's what the third servant who buries what he's entrusted with says. I thought you were bad and I didn't want to get in trouble. Here. That's not a statement about how the world works even. It's a statement about who the master is. See how personal that is? I thought you were bad and I didn't want to get in trouble for doing the wrong thing. Here's your stuff back. To which the master replies, you wicked, lazy servant. If you knew that I harvested crops and I didn't plant and gathered crops I didn't cultivate, why didn't you at least deposit my money in a bank? At least I could have got some interest on it. And he goes, you didn't even do the minimum safe thing that you could have done. And then he ordered all the money taken from that servant and given to the one with 10 bags of silver. And then he closes with this. To those who use well what they're given, more will be given and they will have abundance. But those who do nothing, even little, 
Even the little that they have will be taken away. Now throw, (laughs) this is hard. Now throw this useless servant into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here's the fascinating thing about this story. The one who sees everything as God's and invests it gets well done, good and faithful servant. Come and celebrate with me. We've got relationship. The one that has two, same thing. The one that did not believe that God was good and that his heart could be trusted and tried to manage the thing on his own, he experiences sorrow and relational distance in the end. And this is the crucial question of our heart as it relates to our stuff and God is do we believe he's good? Do we believe that everything we have is his anyway and that we're not owners, we're stewards? Let's take a minute and pray. I think there's some things God would like to do. Um, For some of us, I just think there's an action step this week, which is um, to just realize God is the treasure. He himself is the treasure. So God, we open our hearts to you. I just pray, would you just... Would you capture us with your love? God, if our hearts have grown cold, would you wake them up? Would you love us? Would you remind us that you are what is good in this world and that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights? And for some of us, it's really about trust. Like, um, and the picture that I have is just of a hand that's closed and then a hand that opens and says... God, I'm not going to be the one that is, is run by worries and riches and pleasures. God, I'm going to be the one that is, my life is oriented around trust. So I give it to you. And then the third one. For some of us, it's like, we just need to start moving and start this act of beginning to be generous to be with our generous father and then to look for ways to be generous. And so if you feel like, you know what? God's asking me to take this like step of faith, whether it's to a faith community or to a person that you observe around you that has a need, let God steer and direct you in what that first step is. But uh, God, for those of us that just realize, wow, we need to start down this road of generosity because because we want to live for the eternal stuff and not the temporary stuff. Thanks for listening this week. If you are looking for ways to serve, give, or get connected, go to vkcwest.com.